Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. This weekend, Chad and I will be at Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, at Jeremiah Crow's House of Oddities and Curious Goods. We'll be there from noon until 4 p.m. That is at 6 North Market Street in Elizabethtown, PA, 17022, if you're mailing a letter. All right. We will be outside. I'll have books to sell. I'll have art prints. A few. I'm not going to take like the whole spread I bring to Alba Twitch Day, but I'm going to bring some art prints. I'm going to bring some books. It's a rare opportunity to get the Witch Cloud signed by both Chad and I. Hang out, talk, tell us your spooky stories, etc., etc. We'll be there again from noon until 4 p.m. Jeremiah Crow's House of Oddities in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. That's this Saturday, September 16th, 2023. Love to see you. Come on out and say hello. On tonight's show, we will be talking about the Philadelphia Experiment with Maxim Furyk. Is that where I try to get out of Philly without having a panic attack? We've failed that experiment I've a couple times. I've failed that experiment several times. Yeah. Starting in my 20s and lasting till fairly recently. So Maxim was on the show a little bit ago, and we talked a little bit about the Philadelphia Experiment, but he called me up and he said, hey, you know, the 80th anniversary of the Philadelphia Experiment is this fall. Do you want to do a show specifically on the Philadelphia Experiment? I thought it was probably a pretty good idea. For those of us who might be stuck in the Victorian era of their history, what, I can't remember exactly what the Philadelphia Experiment was. Give me like the, the kindergarten version. There was a naval ship they were doing experiments on with what's called degaussing, which was a way to demagnetize it so landmines wouldn't, wouldn't hit the metal. Oh, okay. And this is done through sending massive amounts of current. Oh, what could go wrong? Through the ship. And apparently they did this experimental degaussing technique. And so the story goes. This ship teleported through space and time. Oh, okay. To, I think, Norfolk, Virginia. And then back to near Philadelphia or wherever it was. Mm-hmm. And... There was a DeLorean on board when it came back. <laughs> no. Supposedly guys were like... In the teleportation, they got embedded in the hull of the ship, so they were alive, but their bodies were embedded, and they are like, horribly screaming and stuff. Oh, like on Star Trek, where they would beam them up, and sometimes they get caught midway? I guess so, yeah. So a lot of people say it didn't happen, a lot of people say it did, it's a cover-up, it's a government cover-up, uh-huh. this and that. Even after talking with Maxim, I'm not sure what I believe. These guys, you know, back in the day... They experimented on their heads as much as they used them to experiment technology and everything else. Could it not be a a broader psychological experiment to see what people would remember, even from like a false memory standpoint? It absolutely could be. I mean, there's so much, and there could be layers. It could have been... Like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah, a both end kind of thing. And, you know, even after talking with Maxim, and I don't know what to believe about it. Bound into this is the Dulce-based stuff, too. He ties it in. With that, Dulce, New Mexico. Oh, okay. I was going to say that's, um, what part of New Mexico is that? Is that? I think that's north of where you were. Okay. 
How do you spell it? Like D-U-L-C-E, I believe. Oh, okay. But that's the place where there's stories of different layers of this base, and the lower you get down, the stranger things get. Well, see, that was so, that was like a common. I know. I told your story to Maxim in the interview. Yeah. Your story. I remember you writing me when you were out there, right? Do you want to tell it? Okay, so I, for a brief period of time, I lived in New Mexico. I was friends with Tim at the time, but we were not. Uh, we were pen pals. We were pen pals. We weren't a couple. Okay, so I'm about to leave to live in New Mexico for a while, and Tim says, "You got to find out about Jack Parsons for me." <laughs> so this is how far back Tim has been, and this was in the early '90s. Into the weird stuff. Into the weird stuff. This was at his like anti-alien mm-hmm. time period mm-hmm. and Jack Parsons period. So that was the main thing I was supposed to look for in the library once I got there. Because mm-hmm. you had to get information from libraries back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't just dial it up at the touch of a finger. It, it was uh, while I was living out there that I did send my first email, though. So this was like 90, 1993, Was maybe? it to me, your first It email? was, actually. <laughs> so... The whole place was very odd, and like everyone who lived out there, because they were so close to a military base, had had some kind of strange experience, UFO-related, just oddness abounds. And the kids that lived in the general area, because we were so young, we had friends that were still in high school, and then mm-hmm. some people that were older, and they all told us about all the the legends that happened in this area, about how there was like underground labs and each successive floor you went down things got stranger and stranger okay was that that story too yeah Yeah, so so i read that later on as regards the dulce base and i didn't remember that you had told me i I remember other parts of the story but go ahead sorry okay and then i also remember there were stories about apes or some ape-like or hybrid creatures who would get loose from these labs and run across the desert and they'd have to hunt them down and kill them that's what i remember yeah because whoever told me, and I can't remember who told me, but I had such a like a, a visual, fearful response to that when somebody told me mm-hmm. that it made me not want to go out in the desert at night again. Because I was like, what if one of these things runs by? They can't distinguish between me and the and the or what if I see it? Like that. Right. Would, yeah. It was uh, so the whole place was filled with sort of like terrifying possibility. Mm-hmm. And for context, I'll tell you that we were very close to the Trinity site, so yeah. it had all that extra mm-hmm. craziness than the extra craziness of living in a town near the border between the United States and Mexico, which has its own... It's liminal space. It's completely it is, liminal. It's totally liminal space. Yeah. And it was just a very, very different landscape, people. Everything was different from what I'd ever experienced before. Interesting that you should mention the Trinity site because we're going to get to some atomic stuff Again, after the interview. It's uh, very prescient that you mentioned that. Yeah, I didn't hear any of this interview when you were recording it, so I don't know anything that went on. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember, and I told Maxim about the creatures running across the desert. That's the only thing I remembered. I didn't remember the different levels, but that's what they say about the Dulce base. Oh, That there's these different levels, and it gets weirder and weirder the further you get down. Like, at some point, you know, you you see humans captured there, and then there's human Hybrids. hybrids. Yes, 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 yes. That's and exactly what the kids were talking where, about. Where there's gray aliens yeah, yeah. and stuff. It's like, I should not get chills telling you the oh, story. No, but, it, no, but I, it, yeah, because I creepy. got chills the first time the kids told me about it. Yeah, yeah. Because it was like very much like sort of like a, imagining like a, like a cabinet of horrors. And yeah, just like, yeah. And you told me this story years before I ever heard of Dulce Base. Dulce Base, I read on the internet much, much later, like much later. 
you know. Yeah, I don't know how far away that base is. My guess is that it's probably like more of the northern. I think it's, it's like a, closer to Los Alamos. I think it's a good bit north of where you were. I'm going to check real quick okay. as we as we speak. There were a lot of other things. Remember, I told you about that um, weird sort of cult-like group that lived in town that they produced a single CD that cost like ten thousand dollars to buy, and because it was like the voice of God. Or yeah, something. they said the voice of God was on their CD. We'll also be talking about the voice of God later after the interview. Oh, okay. You're really like hitting up. You're picking up on. It's the land of enchantment, basically. You're picking up on on stuff psychologically tonight. Where is this place? Oh, it's near the Colorado border. Okay, so it's perhaps as far away in New Mexico as one could be mm-hmm. from, from where you were. From but still, it's it's weird. It is weird because um, some of that urban legend must have floated around New Mexico to some degree. Mm-hmm. Or well, they, the, the stories were that most of the people that worked at Dulce Base didn't live there. There's an underground sort of subway that would bring them in from other parts of New Mexico. Oh, geez. So maybe some of these kids' like relatives live there. I mean, so where I – I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious. Where I was in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. because I the, think you've maybe said that. Yeah, the and there's a, um, there's a military base there. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was there because my boyfriend was in the military. And so mm-hmm. there were a lot of kids who had grown up either around that area, around military bases. So they had their own stories, mm-hmm. and they had their own kind of lore. But a lot of them were sort of – from that area and had some, had a lot of weird goings on. This was one of the first times that I think I encountered people who were sort of above reproach as far as uh, credibility. Meaning? Meaning like I would meet, when I was in in college there, there would be older folks who were uh, retired military who would take classes just for fun, especially Mm -hmm. art classes. Mm -hmm. And there was an older guy who was like probably one of the more conservative people you would meet, like ex-military, and he told me stories about seeing aliens and seeing oh, seeing wow. UFOs and stuff, and he made it seem as if that was just something that people in the military in that area thought of as fact, wow. that, that everyone had had an experience like, like that. He, did he see, like, ETs, like, up close? Or? He said he saw UFOs and wouldn't go any further. Mm. In fairness to the, the skeptical side, it is where a lot of the... The newer and more unconventional um, craft craft yeah. were coming from the um, at the time, and this was you know thirty years ago. It was where the stealths were kept and everything. So mm-hmm. I don't think I'm revealing any state secrets here. And it was yeah, yeah. common knowledge you'd see them fly over. So I don't. It wasn't anything that was a secret. It's a very unusual place, though. Yeah, yeah. TJ keeps wanting me to take a, a trip through the Southwest with him so we can go to all these places. I did end up going through. Roswell on the way back one time. So mm-hmm. I didn't have any alien encounters. It was the first place I ever saw a target. So I feel like that was, <laughs> that was, that <laughs> that was, was the spaceship. That know. was the spaceship that I was. The spaceship target. Yeah. Well, we'll talk to Maxim in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your support. If you like what we do here on Strange Familiars, if you like the content we provide, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. You can also sign up for a different program via Apple Podcasts. There's a subscription program there called Patron of the Strange. Either place, you're helping us. You're helping us make the show. Thank you so much. All of our patrons at either place get commercial-free versions of the weekly shows, plus extra podcasts every month. We do at least one full extra episode for our patrons. Often we do more than one. 
So if you want to help us out, that's a great way to do it. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, let me go ahead and get to this interview with Maxim on the Philadelphia Experiment. I'd like to welcome Maxim Furek back to the show. How are you doing tonight, Maxim? Uh, great, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to, our, to having a, a nice conversation here about the Philadelphia Experiment. Yeah, we already talked about Coal Region Hoodoo once. That's your newest book, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, right? Your UFO book isn't out yet, is it? No, that's coming out the end of September, early October, and that's called The Flying Saucer Esoteric, History's Most Amazing UFO Events, and I'm looking forward to uh, that launch. Uh, that'll be published by Beyond the Fray out in uh, San Diego, so um, I'm excited about that title. Awesome. And, I mean, even though we already talked about Coal Region Hoodoo and we talked a little bit about the Philadelphia Experiment, it's got an anniversary coming up here. It's the 80th anniversary in October, right? That's correct. Yeah, the Philadelphia Experiment allegedly took place in 1943. And what's interesting, I think, at least to me, is that, you know, there's so many people that are talking about Oppenheimer and uh, the Manhattan Project and uh, Enrico Fermi and what he did in Chicago. And the Philadelphia Experiment, actually, if it did happen, it took place then during that time period where we had a whole lot of World War II era secret government military experiments and projects uh, that were being undertaken. So the Philadelphia Experiment certainly just makes sense looking at what was happening at the time. And again, I know we talked about this a little bit when we did the other interview, but can you tell us again just what was the Philadelphia Experiment? Just kind of go over the basics of it before we get into it with more okay. detail. Yeah, well, during World War II, uh, Allied shipping was being sunk by these German mines, and uh, the uh, Germans would lay all these mines um, on, on the bottom of the, of the ocean. And what would happen is uh, ships would come over there, and the magnetic field uh, generated by the, by the ship would go and detonate these bombs that were at the bottom of the sea. So there was, I believe it was a Canadian researcher who realized that if he could go and neutralize the gauss, and the gauss was a mechanism uh, for measuring magnetism, if they could nullify that magnetism, then the ship would be relatively invisible to those mines. So what they did was they had this degaussing technique where they would wrap coils of around these ships and then they would electrify them. And this electricity would go and create a barrier that would uh, negate the magnetic field. So when they went over the, these bombs, uh, they were not detected. So that was called degaussing, and it was, it was very common during World War II. And this led to the Philadelphia experiment itself. Well, what happened was we believed that there was an experiment where the electricity was just a lot more intense than, than uh, what they normally would do. And uh, after creating this, this intensity, the Eldridge, which was a destroyer escort, the uh, USS Eldridge, was teleported from Philadelphia to Norfolk and back. So the Philadelphia Experiment, in a nutshell, is a narrative that's about time travel, it's about teleportation, and it's about government cover-up. I know you dug into this a lot, and you've done a lot of research on this. Do you think it actually happened? Do you think this teleportation actually happened? Yeah, I think something did happen. Again, what it is, I'm not sure. But they're just when you look at the whole totality of the Philadelphia Experiment, the Montauk Project, 
the dulce base, I mean, all these other things that happen with people, individuals that were, were somehow connected to the Philadelphia experiment. I'm thinking that some of these folks were out there trying to mislead us, to deflect us from the truth. Yeah, I think something happened. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I think it was a government experiment that went wrong, or maybe they got it right and they're just trying to cover it up. But amazing story and a number of variations of the story. And the story is still is widely known, even though the, the motion picture from, I believe, was 1984. It was more of a science fiction thriller, but people remember the men that were teleported and that were embedded in the steel. I mean, that is in everybody's head. Everybody remembers that because that was horrific. That was equivalent to the exorcist to uh, the girl turning her head around and then vomiting. Right. So the same thing. So this is the same thing. So people remember the Philadelphia experiment uh, because of the motion picture even though it took us in, you know, sort of went sideways and that was more of a uh, science fiction, a thriller type of uh, film. Are there people involved that claim that teleportation and, and the men embedded in the ship hull, are there people who claim that actually happened? Yeah, there are. There were numerous people that came after the fact, and that's been discussed in the Philadelphia Experiment by uh, Charles Berlitz and uh, William Moore. And also Fred Tracy, a gentleman from Derry, New Hampshire, who I interviewed. Just a number of people have stepped forward and claimed that they had direct connection to the Eldridge and the Philadelphia experiment. So we have uh, their word and, uh, you know, we have uh, numerous uh, books that have been written about the Philadelphia experiment that just, you know, keeps this, this legend going. Mm -hmm. When the ship was teleported, if that's what happened, right. supposedly to Norfolk, was there anybody there who saw it then before it came back to? Yeah, there was a guy named Carl Allen. And Carl Allen claimed that he was aboard another ship. He was a uh, merchant marine. And he was on another ship. And he watched this as it actually happened. And uh, Carl Allen became a uh, significant part of the Philadelphia experiment. He claimed that he was aboard the USS Andrew Furseth. Uh, Allen was a merchant mariner. But around 1956, what he did was he started to send a series of letters, actually over 50 handwritten letters to Dr. Morris Jessup. And Jessup had written a book about UFOs. Well, what Carl Allen did, again, this is a guy from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, out in western Pennsylvania. Allen claimed that Einstein had taught him about the unified field theory, and that was Einstein's attempt to merge gravity with electromagnetism into one field. So everybody's looking for this, you know, this anti-gravity device. I mean, if, if anybody was able to devise that, identify that, you know, they would probably conquer the world. But at any rate, Allen started to send these letters to Morris Jessup, and in the uh, sides, he would have these annotations claiming that uh, what Morris Jessup was talking about was related to Einstein and the unified field theory. Now, Carl Allen also sent, and this was around the uh, mid-50s, also sent a package to the United States Office of the Naval Research, and it was the same thing. So the government was really concerned about this. Again, this was during a time, you know, uh, uh, during the war years, where when they wanted to have every single advantage they could in order to win the war. But anyway, they were looking at these annotations and they thought that Carl Allen might have known something. And so Office of Naval Research uh, reached out to Morris Jessup and they interviewed him and they, and they discussed his book and what he knew about anti-gravity devices. 
and that was their connection with with him. But the the real uh, mystery was uh, this Carl Allen, who also called himself Carlos Miguel Allende. And uh, he played a, a prominent role in the Philadelphia Experiment, the book that was written by uh, William Moore. Let's see, that was back in, I believe, 1987. So he wrote that with uh, Charles Berlitz, and that sort of opened up the door to this legend. So this is kind of all tied in with sort of this um, UFO disclosure or lack of disclosure and all these other sort of underground experiments. I mean, I know you mentioned the Montauk Project and things like that. It seems like it's all tied together, at least they want us to think it is, some of these people. It really is. It's sort of like what John Keel said. John Keel said that all of this stuff is just like like a, just a mishmash. Charles Fort said the same thing. You know, everything just seems to have this, this connection mm-hmm. to each other. But certainly with the Philadelphia Experiment, there's a direct correlation to, the, to Montauk and also to the Dulce base in New Mexico. So... And again, little by little, these individuals started to step forward to talk about that and their connection and, and sort of making the Philadelphia experiment larger, giving it more scope and making it deeper. So. Now, Montauk was that's on uh, Long Island, right? Right, in Long Island, New York. It was at the Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And supposedly that was where they were doing mind control experiments and time control, time travel, and just a whole lot of, uh, you know, really weird things. But they were, uh, Montauk was uh, pretty much publicized by Al Belak, and he was the one that came forward, uh, and he claimed that after seeing the Philadelphia uh, experiment, the, the motion picture, now that was from 1984, Belak saw it in 1988, and he said that what happened was he it just opened up all kinds of floodgates of repressed memories, and he started to remember what had happened. He claimed that his memory had been erased at, at Montauk, but what Al Belak said was this. He, when he came forward, he said that he was aboard the Eldridge. That was the ship that was teleported in 1943. Belak said that it was his job to throw the switch to power these generators. They, they had massive generators that produced this electromagnetic field that would degauss the ship and make them invisible to the mines. But he said that what happened was the ship became unstuck, the machines froze, and him and his brother, his brother Duncan, they were both serving aboard the ship. They jumped off of the ship just to escape after he pulled the switch. And he claimed, and this is a quote from, from me, like he said, quote, we expected to hit the water in the bay and swim ashore, but no water. We never hit it. We kept falling and falling for quite a period of time. So he claimed I've seen two, and Al Belak is all over the internet as far uh, in like with uh, YouTube. But I saw two different variations of this. One was that he was teleported into the future, and then the other one that he was sent back to Montauk, and that's where we heard about Montauk on Long Island. They called it Camp Hero, and again, that's where allegedly mind control experiments and time travel experiments were being conducted. Now, Belak took it further. He said that during the 70s, he was appointed as the program director for these psychics who were working there, these, these psychics who were brought in to man the, what they call the Montauk chair. And that was a device that was used to enhance psychic abilities. Supposedly, uh, Montauk was a continuation of the Philadelphia experiment. And uh, again, you know, looking at uh, time travel and teleportation continuation of all of the Manhattan Project type of things that were happening during World War II. So Belak was pretty much front and center in all of this. Mm. 
And you mentioned the Dulce base. I remember reading about that. That's in New Mexico. And that's, a. I mean, if half the stories about that place are true, that's a strange, strange place. Yeah. So what happened was in 1995, Al Belak invited Schneider, Phil Schneider, to participate in one of his programs. And this was, this was called the Preparedness Expo. It was in Orange County. But Phil Schneider claimed that his father was a German U-boat commander, and he was recruited. He was came over to our side, and he was aboard the USS Eldridge. So that was the connection between Al Belak and Phil Schneider and the Eldridge. And then what happened was Phil claimed, and this is pretty interesting. So, again, the story, Al Belak's story about Montauk, and time travel and going into the future is just like amazing. But if you listen to any of the narratives with Al Belak on YouTube, I mean, the guy just makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, he's well-spoken. He has total recall, attention to detail. He's probably was the foremost proponent of the Philadelphia experiment. I mean, he's very, very convincing. And he talks about Einstein and Tesla and every single person, you know, Townsend Brown, everybody that was involved in any experimentation during that time. So I'll be like, I mean, you could write him off as being crazy or, or whatever, whatever you want to do. But I mean, when you listen to him, I mean, it's just amazing the amount of uh, intel that he has. So 1995, he invites Phil Schneider to his expo in Orange County, California. It's called the Preparedness Expo. And that's where Phil Schneider talked about the Dulce base. And what this was, was he, uh, Phil Schneider claimed that he was a working for the CIA and that he was helping to construct these underground bases. They were called DUMBs. That was the acronym, D-U-M-B. It was deep underground military bases. And he claimed, uh, Schneider claimed that each base cost something like $17 billion, that we had a whole bunch of them, that these DUMBs were hidden in the black project that there, there's monies there floating around that nobody knows because they're hidden. So, you know, hidden from the public eyes and also the uh, military eyes. So they're just secret clandestine projects that have that are funded, well funded, but nobody knows, you know, uh, what they are and where the money's going. But anyway, uh, Schneider was an engineer and he was an explosives expert. And what was happening was that they were drilling down to, in the Dulce base. Now they were going down like something like two and a half miles underground. And the drills kept on breaking. So they decided to go down there and find out what was happening with, with the drills. And so Schneider, and this is all very, I mean, plausible, Schneider's role was to go down there and find out what was going on and find out if it would make more sense to use maybe plastic, you know, C4 or something else to go and dynamite some of the rock that was down there rather than to go and drill it. Well, when they went down there, he went down there with uh, green berets and black berets and they turned around the corner, and there he saw, they saw humanoids. And there were a number of them that were four feet tall. The one was seven foot tall. Schneider killed two of the humanoids, the extraterrestrial biological entities, they're called. He killed two of them with his, his pistol. And then the other one, the seven foot alien, shot him with this laser. And luckily, one of the Green Berets was able to go and get Schneider out of there and save his life. So Schneider then in 1995, along with Al Belak, started to talk about the Dulce project 
and what was happening down there. And he claimed that there was there had been an agreement. Now, this is similar. Your listeners are familiar with the Roswell narrative from 1947, where supposedly the number of crafts went down and we captured humanoids. And there was an, an agreement that they would teach us the technology and we would give them a safe haven. So that story has been going around for a long time. With the Dulce project, according to Phil Schneider, there was an agreement that, again, the aliens, the extraterrestrials, would go and teach us their technology, their advanced technology. But in turn, they would be allowed to go and experiment and capture not only cattle, but also human beings. The only caveat was that they had to go and identify the human beings that they were taking, taken, and then when they brought them back, they would go and erase their memory so they wouldn't have any recollection of this. That's where these cattle mutilations allegedly started because of this. And then, according to Phil Schneider, what happened was the aliens were actually taking too many human beings and actually killing them. And so they had uh, the Dulce War between the, the humans and the extraterrestrials. And that's what happened with Schneider. He was involved in that almost got killed, lost, I believe it was three of his fingers from that laser blast from that seven-foot alien. But again, Al Belak and Schneider are all over the internet. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, we call them whistleblowers because they're leaking this information that was government, you know, classified, whatever. But interesting how this played out. And it was also, it's, I'm, I'm very concerned about how Phil Schneider met his end, uh, how he died. And that's something that I think adds some kind of credibility to his narrative. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, what happened was he, he was strangled to death with a catheter tube and it looked like it was a military-style hit. Now, he was, uh, he was in very poor health. He was in a wheelchair for time, uh, a while. Uh, he was incapacitated. You know, he had lost, I think it was three fingers, he said, from that blast. I mean, he was in really bad physical shape. His wife didn't feel that he was capable of actually killing himself, you know, strangling himself. It looked like it was a hit, looked like it was a, a murder. And I believe that just maybe he might have gotten a little bit too close to the truth. Uh, when you take a look at some of the people that have died in this whole thing, Phil Schneider, allegedly strangled to death, murdered, Admiral Forrestal jumped to his death, um, alleged suicide in uh, 1949, jumped 16 floors. A number of people that were friends of uh, Phil Schneider Ron Rummel, who was the publisher along with Schneider of Alien Digest, he was killed. It looked like suicide. It looked like he shot himself in the mouth, but everybody around him said that he wasn't depressed. Uh, he had no reason to kill himself. But by one by one, there were these people that were dying, either from alleged suicides. The big one was Carl uh, Morris Jessup, who played such an important part in the Philadelphia Experiment. He was going to go and reveal what he had found out about anti-gravity devices. He was going to meet with his friend, this Dr. Valentine. And the day before that, Morris Jessup was found in a parking lot in Miami Park. And he, it looked like he killed himself. He took a tube, a hose, and he attached it from the uh, exhaust to his car and allegedly killed himself. Not everybody believed that he was killed. There has been books written about, you know, a purported homicides just to keep these people quiet. 
So again, we don't know. All we know is that there's a whole bunch of dead bodies. It reads like a John Grissom thriller. And uh, it's just amazing, you know, the people that have died. And again, I don't, I don't think that ufology is just riddled with people that are suicidal and depressed. And again, when you talk about government cover-ups and government action, I mean, there are groups unknown to us. I mean, groups that are more murky than the CIA and the FBI. And these groups that are hidden, that we don't know about them because their, their funding is camouflaged within other groups. And they're pretty much, they work on their own. They're almost autonomous. And a lot of these government programs operate on a, uh, the concept of a plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, they may go out there and do something, do their hit, do their bad deeds, but then they never tell the president or the uh, vice president or anybody else. So they do not know about this. So they have this plausible deniability. They don't know about it. So they could just act dumb even though they may know about these organizations. So I don't know. I think that there's just uh, so much that was happening with the Philadelphia Experiment and then the various spinoffs, just amazing narrative. And it got bigger. It got bigger than the Philadelphia Experiment. It got, you know, with Montauk and the Dulce uh, projects. Well, Maxim, I'll tell you what, if I get a visit from Men in Black after this episode airs, you're going to be getting an angry phone call from me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I could see that, yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, the, yeah, yeah. Albert Bender, the guy that supposedly initiated that Men in Black thing, yeah, he was from Duryea, Pennsylvania, which is right up the road from me, Duryea. So Bender did that. Yeah. So. Just to step back to the Dulce base, just to maybe of interest to the listeners, one of the narratives about what was happening there is they were making sort of hybrids, these sort of hybrid creatures. And again, this is just something I read on the internet years and years and years ago, that the further, the lower you got in the Dulce base, the weirder things got. And then, you know, at some levels, they have these animal-human hybrids that they were breeding or something like this. But the interesting thing about that is, Allison, my wife, lived in New Mexico, and this is way before Strange Familiar's time. This is yeah, okay, yeah, sure. She was, Montana, yeah. She was not interested in in that stuff. This would have been the early '90s, and she wrote me a letter. We were we were pen pals at that time, and I remember her writing me a letter and telling me about her boyfriend at the time was in the military out there, and they had these stories. These military guys would tell stories about these things these creatures escaping into the desert and they would have to go hunt them down now wow whether that's fake or not i don't know but i just that story always stuck in my head and years later i read about this dulce base and thought wow that's like you know i wonder if those stories fit together yeah i have to think that there's some truth some a kernel of truth supposedly there was a french study that claimed that the united states the government knew about ufo's and uh, extraterrestrial biological entities but we were were keeping uh, quiet about it i don't know all i know is that with um, july yeah it was july 26 2023 that's when no it was august 26 2023 that's when they had the congressional hearings 
and uh, it looked like there was going to be some sort of transparency and that there was going to be some, at least an effort on the part of the government to show us some of the evidence and law saying that if you come forward, uh, you know, you won't be punished. You won't be castigated. So they're talking a good talk, but let's see what actually comes of this. One other thing, too, of, of, I found of interest. You know, the other day I was watching Earth the, versus the Flying Saucers, 1956. Harry Hausen animation, you know, it was just a fun black and white 50s flick. I love to watch those things. In the beginning of these, a lot of these motion pictures started off with a scientist who would talk about, you know, flying saucers and, and you know, the and give it sort of like a, an element of, uh, of respectability, of authenticity. They claimed, this scientist claimed in versus the flying saucers that 3% of the things that we see we can identify. And flash forward to 2020, the Pentagon's talking about this, same thing, 3% of these things we see we can't identify. And they're saying they're either ours, they belong to maybe Russia or China, or they are extraterrestrial in origin, but we don't know. And uh, it's amazing that black and white sci-fi films said the same thing. So I just, I got a chuckle out of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, stepping back to the Philadelphia experiment, you mentioned driving up to New Hampshire to interview Frederick Tracy. Who was he? And what caused you to, to make that trip up to go interview him? Yeah. My cousin, James Furick, was a medic, and he was in Vietnam, and uh, he was living in Derry, New Hampshire at the time. So he lived there for a while, and then he came back to Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania, where I'm from. So I was talking to Cousin Jim, and he started to talk about this guy, Fred Tracy, and said that Fred knew about the Philadelphia Experiment. And I hadn't heard about the Philadelphia Experiment. I don't know if I read the book at the time. I, I forget. But at any rate, and I was interested. So Jim called Fred up and put me on the phone with him, and we started to converse. So I called him a number of times, and then I decided to go up there to Derry to hear his story. And Fred Tracy claimed that he was on an aircraft carrier called the Antietam. And he claimed that similar degaussing experiments happened to him aboard the Antietam several times. He talked about the negative effects that happened to the men, you know, the loss of hair, the itching, the skin problems, you know, the confusion. So he was saying that they, uh, they were exposed to high levels of electricity and radiation, much like what happened in the Eldridge. The other thing that Fred said was that while they were there, Admiral For there was a directive read from Admiral Forrestal. And this is during the end of World War II, but Admiral Forrestal was saying that Philadelphia Experiment actually took place. And he talked about the effects of that. And the men aboard, on board the uh, Antietam were warned not to say any anything about what they heard. It would be an act of treason. And I was on an interview oh, the other week, and we were talking about the Philadelphia Experiment. But, uh, the question was, why didn't these men say anything years later? And I always thought that the men, the GI generation, you know, the men who fought World War II, that they were different. They were conservative and they were loyal. And maybe they were filled with fear and loyalty. There were equal parts of fear and loyalty. But one thing that maybe they uh, just respected that oath that they took, you know, when they heard what Admiral Forrester was saying. But again, Fred Tracy said that he heard this directive that was written by Admiral Forrestal, wanted the, the, the men of the Antietam to know what was happening. Again, the, uh, the war was, end, was winding down, so it seemed like it was a logical time to do that. But then, as we said, what happened was Admiral Forrestal 
1949 died. He was being treated for depression. And what's interesting, he was uh, at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, but he was on the 16th floor. And if you're being treated for depression, and if you possibly have suicidal tendency, you don't send somebody up to the 16th floor, you know, maybe the first floor or the second floor. But anyway, that was mysterious in itself. And of course, Forrestal, who was the first secretary of the Navy, Forrestal was connected to the purported MJ-12 group, which was a group that supposedly was put together to investigate cases like Roswell and other UFO uh, crashes. So That was what Forrestal played was a very important part of the ufology, I mean, to this day. Yeah, the connection's very tangled web here. It is a tangled web, yeah. And I don't know, uh, there was a book by uh, David Ritchie, uh, UFO, The Definite Guide to Unidentified Flying Objects and Related Phenomena. And he talked about Jessup, and he thought that Dr. Jessup was, uh, Morris Jessup was, was actually murdered for what he knew, you know, that it wasn't a suicide, but that he was killed because he came too close to figuring out the Philadelphia experiment, maybe the anti-gravity part of that. Again, if somebody had an anti-gravity device, they would probably rule the world. I mean, that would be so, I mean, that's going against every law of physics and, uh, you know, and science. So it's the holy grail. It's something that uh, everybody's been looking for. And again, Philadelphia Experiment is just surrounded by things like this. And, and at that time, remember, we're watching Oppenheimer, you know, the development of the, of the, uh, the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb, and people like Enrico Fermi, another part of that project, doing his own separate thing in Chicago, under the University of Chicago, underneath the, the gymnasium in this, uh, this chamber where they have logs and plutonium rods. And they're inserting the rods and just seeing if they could go and trigger some kind of a uh, nuclear reaction. So, you know, I mean, everybody was doing their part. LSD was developed around this time. And, you know, when we talk about Montauk and mind control, certainly psychedelics were a big part of mind control. We know that the United States government, the CIA, and Russia, you know, has experimented with uh, with mind control and projecting thoughts and, and all these, you know, trying to find people's psychic abilities. So having a project like Montauk isn't far-fetched, if, you know, given the fact that the government has experimented with things like that and experimented with LSD. You know, the CIA was experimenting with the LSD. So, you know, like ACDC said, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. <laughs> we just don't know, you know, the extent of it. So. I heard a story recently, just vaguely tying in the strangeness with all this stuff, about there was a fellow in Tennessee in the uh, 1800s who predicted all these amazing things. Uh, he predicted this would happen and, and that would happen and the train would go through his town and, and all this. Supposedly he was in touch with an angel or something. I forget the, the exact story. But one of the predictions he made is that there would be a city on what was then known as Black Oak Ridge and that that city, uh-huh. that city would help people win great war, would help America win a great war. And uh, that is now known as Oak Ridge, Tennessee, also known as the Atomic City. That's one of the places where they were developing the atomic bomb. Yeah, amazing, amazing, yeah, yeah. So there is, there is I, strangeness, I, like, woven into this stuff, you know, that, yeah. at the very fabric yeah. of it. 
Yeah, I know. And again, I'm looking, you know, I'm, I try to look at this as a scientist and not as a true believer, not as a uh, person that's, that, that's blindly going into this. But you know, I totally believe that something happened in 1943 in Philadelphia. I said that there was uh, some sort of an experiment, that it went sideways, that people were hurt, and there was a cover-up. Now, Fred Tracy claimed that they took the Eldridge and they switched the logs of the name. They changed it with another ship called the Wikiwachi. Tracy claimed that there was uh, some a congressional hearing. Now, again, I wish he was still alive. I'd like to go back and ask him, like, how do you, how do you know about this stuff? Because he had some, like Al Belak, like uh, Phil Schneider, Fred Tracy seemed to have some very good intel, some very good inside information. So, again, I don't know where Fred got this, but he claimed that there was a uh, some sort of a congressional hearing. And they decided to take the Eldridge to Arizona, where they blew it up, you know, use C4 plastic, and then buried it in the desert. So that's what Fred Tracy said. The uh, government was saying that they took the Eldridge and gave it to uh, Greece, where it was renamed the Leon. And then it was decommissioned, I think, back in the 50s and mothballed. So, you know, you have two different stories, and, and that's fine because the truth lies somewhere between them. You know, I, I would like more people to just go and talk about this. And I'm just, you know, if any of your listeners know anybody who was aboard the Eldridge, or if any of your listeners know of anybody who might have been connected to the 1943 Philadelphia experiment, you know, I'd, I'd love them to either contact me or you mm -hmm. and give us what information they have, because there's probably people there that are still alive that may have some information. Yeah, or their kids, you know. Or their, or their kids, yeah. Sometimes people talk to their kids. So what year were you interviewing Fred Tracy? That had to be around, I want to say 1987. Okay, so around the time shortly after the movie came out and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And again, I don't know when I saw the movie and when I read the book. I mean, that would right. be great to know, but, yeah. but I, I did eventually do that. One other thing, too, that, that we have to really take a look at is uh, William Moore. You know, he wrote the book with uh, Charles Berlitz in 1987, and he Later, at one of the conferences, he said that he was spreading disinformation within the ufology community. So William Moore, again, I don't know exactly what happened. William Moore was one of them. Richard Doty was one that was spreading information to uh, Paul Benowitz, who Paul was involved in the Dulce base. Benowitz was a UFO researcher, and uh, supposedly he was driven insane by Richard Doty at the uh, request of the government. So just some really weird things happening here. But William Moore isn't who he claims to be. So I don't know exactly what happened. If, Maybe he was caught with disinformation and claimed that he was an agent of the government, and that's why he was doing this disinformation. I'm not sure, but he's when you talk about William Moore, you put an asterisk after his name. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. You know, when we talk about Montauk and uh, Dulce, I don't know. We have a lot of unanswered questions. And again, we have what I call government either uh, denial or censorship or uh, disinformation. And I think they've been really good at launching these disinformation campaigns that just muddy the waters and just, you know, I think maybe we were getting too close to something with the Philadelphia experiment. And then we started to see a lot of other crazy things. One thing about Al Bilak was that he claimed that he was involved in time travel. 
and that he went to the year, uh, oh, but it was like 190 years into the future, where he saw these civilizations had a different types of government. They had people that were genetically engineered. They had near-perfect humanoid that were uh, genetically engineered. They were almost perfect. They were the ones running everything. So he talked about all these. He like talked about the New World Order that has determined that the population should only be 500 million people. And his uh, narrative when he talked about the year was uh, 2749. He claimed that he was uh, time travel to that year. He said that, you know, they had floating cities and they were highly advanced civilizations. And I know it sounds bizarre and it's, it sounds like a sophisticated Georgia Domsky. That's what it sounds like. But when you listen to Al Bilak, I mean, he's almost without fault. I mean, he died. He was, I think, 95 years old when he died, but just articulate, uh, knowledgeable, uh, just a wealth, uh, a plethora of information. And uh, when you, I've been listening to, uh, to his videos on YouTube, I mean, for the last two weeks and uh, just amazing. I mean, pretty amazing guy. But he talked about anti-gravity systems in the year 2749. Just amazing things. Uh, no wars, no military, no rules or regulations, no banks, no money, everything's free. It's almost like, uh, so like socialism. And his only complaint was that he says that it was almost like a complaint against socialism and communism. He said that there was uh, many times a lack of motivation in that in that society, that mm. what was it, I think, 23rd century society. So anyway, Montauk and uh, time travel. The other thing that Bilak said was that when he was at Montauk, they sent him back to the Eldridge and then he, they had him uh, dismantle all of the machinery there. So he went from 1943 to uh, Montauk and then they sent him back. And then he talked about all the time travel to, uh, you know, to these other places, uh, you know, uh, you know, hundred and some years in the future. So it's bizarre. So I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. what do you think, Tim? I mean, <laughs> I mean, these are the waters we swim in, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't kill the messenger either. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, for, for my part, I think that these guys were into something. And I think there's so much mud in the water thrown there you know possibly by the government that they themselves in the end i think they thought they were telling the truth don't get me wrong i don't think they were they were lying but yeah i think there was just a lot of mud thrown in the water by the government and a lot of messing with these guys heads in various ways and in the end you know i think we get part of the story. Maybe none of them knew the whole story. And maybe yeah. that, that's why it takes all these different people to put different pieces together. Right. Yeah. I really do believe that there's underground bases. You know, this sure. is, this is, uh, you know, yeah. Cold War stuff. So, you know, we have uh, bases. There, there's there's a, a secret, somewhat secret base in Pennsylvania, out in, uh, you know, out by, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, you know, maybe by the Chestnut Ridge area, you know, by Somerset, that uh, lower tier. There's supposed another show where we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and of course, there's, I mean, Camp David's not very far away either. You know, yeah. that's, yeah. yeah. My father was a Green Beret. Oh, wow. Okay. He, he had top secret clearance, but he was also a telephone man. So when he came out of the army and went back to work for the telephone company, when they needed somebody to work and, you know, very secret places, they would often get him to do it. And he described to me, working in a place he said that was a mountain and they showed him how they they did it 
Uh, he said you would drive up to the mountain and it would look like a mountain and then it would open up. It would just open up and you'd drive inside. And they were showing him, because he was doing all the telephone work there, and they were showing him how they, they actually made the place. And they would they flew over and took aerial photographs of every tree, every bush. And he said they showed the construction process. And at the end, they put every tree and every bush back right where it was. So, but yeah, there's that. Amazing. I mean, he, he was in one of these underground facilities. that They absolutely exist. Now, whether mm-hmm. these hybrid things exist in them, I don't know. But I mean, the, the bases themselves absolutely exist. Yeah. And then as far as, you know, the authenticity, I have a friend whose parents were in the CIA, and he says that they were sent to the farm. They were deprogrammed, shock treatment, medications, et cetera, just to go and clear their minds and wipe out some of the stuff that was in there. So, again, he's told me the story. He's challenged by it. He's concerned by it. You know, like, you know, there were a lot of uh, emotional problems with his parents because of that. But it's not a clean procedure. You know, it's messy. And these are human minds that you're dealing with. But again, uh, they were with the CIA and uh, they were deprogrammed. And that's a, uh, you know, that's a nasty procedure. So, yeah. 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 Do you know if the military still uses that degaussing technology or they, they have something else now that they use? I would think that they would use something else because the degaussing technique was just ponderous. I mean, coils and coils of these Tesla coils that they would have to wrap around the ships. You would have to have generators aboard the ship, you know, to generate the current. So it was just cumbersome and archaic. And that was like 1940s technology. Today, whatever they use, I'm sure is different. I'm sure that I'm sure that they have devices to detect those bombs and whatever. But uh, no, I haven't heard of any current degaussing thing. And and I did a bunch of research on it. I don't think it's a modern day technique. Mm-hmm. So. so did these the experiments that they were doing, including the Philadelphia experiment, did that end with World War II, or do you think they continued on? I don't know. I think that uh, probably what might have happened was, you know, according to the, the, the legend, is that the Philadelphia experiments continued in Montauk mm. with teleportation slash time travel slash mind control techniques. And again, it doesn't take much to, to imagine a facility where they're dealing with things like that or, you know, trying to see if that's a possibility. I mean, there's plenty of history about experimentations with mind control and the psychedelics, especially LSD. Yeah, I think that the Philadelphia experiment continued under another name. And even it was called Project Mirage. And I forget there was another name for it, but uh, they had a Project Rainbow. So there were a couple of um, names for the Philadelphia experiment. And uh, it's possible that maybe Project Rainbow might have been like an additional experiment, you know, just sort of like the Manhattan Project had all these different little spinoffs. You know, all these people were working on separate projects who could build the better bomb, you know, mm-hmm. whether plutonium or uranium or whatever. And that's pretty amazing in itself. I mean, what they were doing. So when you take a look at what was happening during the warriors during the 1940s, I mean, just amazing amount of creativity, people going to Einstein. I think Einstein, they call, I think they call him the general, but he was the one that pretty much signed off on everything. So Whenever they had, you know, whether it was Tesla working on something or Townsend, you know, Townsend Brown. I mean, so many people working on so many fascinating things. And that's where all of this comes into play. And so with Carl Allen, Carl Allen seemed to know a whole lot about this stuff. And again, what he did was he took a copy of Morris Jessup's book about UFOs 
and he wrote in the on the columns these annotations and it looked like it was three different people that were conversing but they talked about anti-gravity machines and all this and then when the uh, naval research uh, department got a hold of that they brought in morris jessup they wanted to know what was going on so Jessup knew that this came, this had come from Carl Allen because Carl Allen had sent him something like 50 different letters talking about this. So uh, just amazing. But when you read the book, Philadelphia Experiment, Morris, Dr. Morris Jessup is in there. And Jessup, by the way, he fits into uh, you know this narrative. I mean, he was an archaeologist. He wasn't really a doctor, but he was one of the first people, like H.P. Lovecraft, he was one of the first people to talk about ancient aliens. I mean, he was there before Eric von Donneken and all these other people were, were talking about ancient aliens. So uh, Morris Jessup, that was sort of like one of his claims to fame. But he was a very interesting guy, sort of obscure in the annals of ufology. As is Fred Tracy. But, you know, it's amazing. I think Fred Tracy is just as, uh, should be as noteworthy as is uh, Al Bilak and also Phil Schneider. So, What do you have coming up? I think you told me that you've been invited to the Bigfoot and Cryptic Supernatural Expo in Johnstown. Yeah, I have. And uh, it's amazing because I'm getting just tons of exposure in Western Pennsylvania. I've had a number of feature articles written about coal region hoodoo and my appearance. So it's, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this. As you know, I mean, Bigfoot expos are huge. And I was involved in the first one in Elysburg. This one in Johnson is the first one. And there was just another one in northeastern Pennsylvania. So they're popping up all over the place. And, you know, and Tim, you're one of the uh, legendary Bigfoot experts. Certainly your name's mentioned all the time. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to participating in the conversation out there. And I'm one of the guys that believes that there's a connection between Bigfoot and UFOs. And um, not sure what that is, but there just seems to be something that's a, a tangible connection. And it just shows me that maybe Bigfoot is bigger than just flesh and blood that there's something else going on yeah well if people want to read more about the philadelphia experiment they can pick up your book coal region hoodoo paranormal tales from inside the pit and your new book or your new upcoming book is the flying saucer esoteric history's most amazing ufo events you want to give us a preview of that Yeah, what I do is I take a look at hoaxers and abductees and uh, contactees, scientists, uh, planetary explorers, zealots, and uh, heretics. I mean, the whole bit. I mean, we take a look at this whole world of ufology, and it's almost like a time machine. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, researching this and putting this together. So I'm looking forward to this coming out, and uh, I'm hoping that it's going to expand the narrative on uh, uh, UAPs a little bit further. So we'll see what happens, but I'm excited, and I think the timing's right. I think people want to talk about flying saucers a little bit more. You know, everybody has their own opinion on what they are, but The Flying Saucer Esoteric should be published by Beyond the Fray, hopefully the end of September or early October. Awesome. Where can our listeners get your books? Yeah, contact me at my website, if you would. It's www.maximfurek.com, M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K, and I'd be glad to go and uh, send out an autographed copy of uh, any of my books. So uh, they could check out the website and see what's all there. So, uh, yeah, that would be great. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Sounds good. Maxim, thank you for stopping by and talking to us again, and I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. 
Thanks, Tim. This was great. Well, thank you so much and continued success to you as well. Thank you. Okay, so during the interview, I mentioned this prophet from Tennessee. I was talking to Maxima about him. We might do a full show on this guy someday. Mm -hmm. Very interesting guy. But I forgot his name when I was talking to Maxima. His name is John Hendricks. And I pulled an article from the Knoxville News Standard, Knoxville, Tennessee. This is from August 15th, 1965. You want to read it? Sure, sure. Loafers scoffed at the voice of thunder. So down to the story of the long-haired bearded and strangest character of all who gathered on the square and of Bear Creek Valley of Oak Ridge and the atom bomb. I first heard of John Hendricks, the prophet, nearly 20 years ago for some old timers as John Malone, then living in Clinton, and James Braden of Andersonville. The story was printed in this column and was on my WNOX radio program, but a new generation has come along, and besides, I've never had the story in the Sunday column. The time was around the turn of the century, or 40-odd years before Oak Ridge. This old man, with long hair and beard and small piercing blue eyes, lived on a small farm a few miles outside of Clinton. He was an eccentric. Some thought he was crazy. Once he was committed to an institution for a short while, he would come down into Clinton and onto the courthouse square to talk to anybody who'd listen. One day he told of how he had been praying in the woods near his home. And the good Lord come to me, he said, and told me if I'd sleep with my head on the ground 40 days, he'd reveal to me the future of this valley. The Lord said that to me in a voice like a clap of thunder. Some of the loafers scoffed. The old fool, they said. Why don't he stay home and work? Here his family is starving. The old fellow went home, and he piled eight rocks in front of his yard gate and hung up a sign, Smite thine enemies. Some court authorities came out. They saw the sign, and they didn't bother him. (laughs) So he went into the woods to pray and to sleep for 40 days with his head on the ground. Rain started falling, and on the 25th night, he had to quit. He had pneumonia. He pulled through that even at his age. That vision didn't come to him until several months later. He was in a field near Edgemore raking hay. He went unconscious as if he were overcome with the heat, and then he came to, wiping his long, sweaty hair from his face and crying out, I got the vision! I got the vision! He went down into Clinton and onto the square where men were standing about whittling, talking, and laughing. It was here he had hinted at the prophecy to come. It was here that they laughed at him. Now he wanted to tell them. I got the vision as was promised me, he said. The LNN will start to build a railroad. The Southern then will jump in to beat the LNN. He told that the railroad would run down through the valley, and he named all the small stations that were to come. He said the depot would be at Scarborough. He missed on that. No depot was ever built at Scarborough. But the bridge was built across the Clinch River, just where he said it would be, at the lower part of Bradley's Buffs. But the courthouse idlers who remembered the old man's predictions and saw them come true just laughed and said the old fellow just happened to hit it once that he was still a crackpot and a screwball. About two months before John Hendricks died in 1903, he told of another vision, and if Oak Ridge and the atom bomb had never been, John Hendricks would soon have been forgotten and the story never told. He said in the second vision he had been taken to paradise on a white ship that was 200 feet long. Mind you, there were no airplanes then. He said it was revealed to him that Bear Creek Valley would contain big buildings to make a product to help with the worst war mankind had ever been suffered. And it was revealed to him, he said, that there would be a big city there in the valley, and this city would be called Black Oak Ridge. He missed there just a little. The city is Oak Ridge. 
John Hendricks, who prophesied all these things, lies buried in the old graveyard near his home there in the Oak Ridge area. The graveyard and the stone that marks the grave will be preserved, and long will the story be remembered. The Bizarre Story, a first chapter in the Oak Ridge story. Here's another article. This is from the Commercial Appeal, Memphis, Tennessee, January 29th, 1951. We laugh at prophets, but an old man of the hills, an aesthetic who roamed the fields and woods of East Tennessee many years ago, had visions and was unswerved when his listeners laughed. Even his wife shrugged it off when he predicted that there would be a railroad built into these wilds. Nobody took the trouble to write down the revelations, which he pronounced, but enough remained to become folklore, and lo, there came a day when John Hendricks was to be remembered as a prophet with great honor in his own country. For John Hendricks said, In the woods, as I lay on the ground and looked up into the sky, there came to me a voice as loud and sharp as thunder. The voice told me to sleep with my head on the ground for forty nights, and I would be shown visions of what the future holds for this land. So John Hendricks, so the story goes on, obeyed these instructions and proclaimed to the unbelievers, And I tell you, Bear Creek Valley someday will be filled with great buildings and factories, and they will help toward winning the greatest war that ever will be, and there will be a city on Black Oak Ridge. Big engines will dig big ditches, and thousands of people will be running to and fro. They will be building things, and there will be a great noise and confusion, and the earth will shake. I've seen it coming. So his friends and neighbors around the country store murmured about John's maybe being touched in the head. He died in 1903. That was the year the Wright brothers made a mechanical kite carrying a man on Kill Devil Hill in North Carolina. All this comes from Gus Robinson's story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He found legends of these prophecies as he served in a secret capacity at Oak Ridge when the atom bomb was still on paper long before Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The article goes on, but no more about John Hendricks. I'll skip to the end. The center of Oak Ridge is exactly where John Hendricks predicted it would be. He probably never heard of an atom, but he did call a few shots. His prophecy belongs in Gus's saga of a people who shared in history. So what's out of context there is he also predicted airplanes. Mm -hmm. He said people would be flying in planes. So that's why they mentioned Wright Brothers there. Yeah. Oak Ridge was where they built the atom bomb. It's not an insignificant place to dream about. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a stunning story. Like, yeah. And he said he was carried in a big white ship there. I mean, immediately you go UFO, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So this is like 1903. He died. So all this is happening before then. In the 1800s. He's predicting. 18 or very early 1900s. Right around. predicting there. flight. And a city on Oak Ridge where there was no reason for a city to be built there on Black Oak Ridge where they put Oak Ridge. <laughs> and then that happens. It's amazing. Because yeah, I imagine that place is fairly remote at that time. Like you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't see a big city. They going. didn't have a train going through there. He predicted where the train would come through. You know what I mean? It was like. This is really interesting stuff. There's more about him. We might, like I said, we might do a full show on him someday. But because I brought him up, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it and read these articles, you know, to kind of say, yeah, this guy's name was John Hendricks and no relation to Jimmy, to my knowledge. I don't know how it all fits together with the Philadelphia experiment, but it's it's weirdness involved with this atomic age, right? Yeah. Like, there, it reminds me of like in Carnival where they, they talk about oh, yeah. how the they, they're kind of racing towards what... The, yeah. the atomic bomb is like the death of magic yeah. when we realize we can we can annihilate oh, ourselves. It's such a fantastic concept. I mean, it's a good series, too. Yeah, yeah. But that concept is so interesting.
All right. Well, we have a curiosity of the week that is not, to my knowledge, radioactive. It is a circa sort of Civil War era Carte de Visite album filled with photos. Most of the people are from Cadoras, Pennsylvania, which is... Oh, York County. York County, um, in between York and Hanover. Oh, yeah. The photographer in Jefferson at the time? Yeah, there were, there were photographers everywhere. Yeah, but Jefferson's small now. I can't imagine it being able to support a photographer now, much less then. Yeah, what does it support now? It couldn't even support a thrift shop. <laughs> it supports a hill climb. That's true. And a, and a very popular carnival. And a post office that's rarely open. Yeah, it's almost like uh, by chance. <laughs> yeah. Very, very cool little album. I like this. Lots of pictures. This would be great to start your collection with if you wanted to start collecting old photographs. There's lots of them that have pretty cool backgrounds, and they're very sharp. He was a good photographer. Yeah. Most likely. I mean, I didn't put these photos in. These are the ones that came with the album. Came so with, yeah. presumably everybody in here is of some relation to one another. If you want a research project. Yeah. There weren't yeah, that men, many people women, in this area. Ch- children. <laughs> neat outfits and costumes, I guess. Uh, you know, I don't mean that as in they're dressing up. I mean, like, period costume, yeah. you know. Clothing. <laughs> period clothing. There you go. That makes more sense. They're just wearing clothes. Yeah. Oh, this is this is neat. Yeah. So nice, thick little photo album there. It's got a, the binding's still nice. It's got a gilt edge. It's a missing part of the latch, but it's not. Yeah, and there's some photos missing, and some of the pages are a little, you know. Worse for wear, but. Yeah, but it's wear consistent with age, as I like to say. Yeah, it's like 160 years old. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's, yeah. That's it's, like, it's, to me, anything that's 160 years old that's in that condition is. These old album pages are paper, and they're pulling yeah, pulling pictures in and in out. In and out, and they're going to tear eventually. But there's still a lot of pictures in here. There's still a lot of good pages. Yeah, that's a cool one. I like that. I'll put an image of that in the show notes, maybe a couple of pictures of some interior photos and cover. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that. And those few curiosities of the week that are left, many of them have sold. There's still a few out there. It's always interesting to me when one sells, like, Months after we do it, I wonder if somebody has just listened to that show and it's months later and they're like, oh, I'd like or that. Or somebody finds it randomly on yeah, Etsy they, who's never heard of the exactly, show. Exactly. That's yeah. also a possibility. Yeah. There's always like a curiosity there. A curiosity about the curiosity. True, true. Also at Etsy, artwork, including the artwork I did for this episode. That'll be up there. You can purchase the original of that. I have other artwork there, originals and prints. I have my books. All of my books are there. Just got restocked, so we have plenty of everything in stock. When you get them from Etsy, I'll sign them. You don't even have to ask. They come signed. Strange Familiars t-shirts, stickers, patches, other photographs Allison has. Random selection of antique and vintage photographs there. And the Flower Pass section has handmade paracord rosaries. I love making them. I love that they're, they're selling pretty well. I'm happy about that. You can pick those up there. We have the little single decade pocket rosaries and full five-decade rosaries. This is a precursor to you doing like elaborate cross-stitch, I think. <laughs> cross-stitch angels for Christmas. Cross-stitch. I could get into that, though. <laughs> it's like, because it's kind of like drawing with thread, right? It is. Yeah. But there's also counting and seeing involved, and I'm I'm out. <laughs> seeing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my eyesight is not that great I, anymore. I imagine my cross-stitch projects might go like, thread this needle for me, Allison. <laughs> Right now, I'm like, put my glasses up on my forehead and I'll try. Yeah, lots of stuff at our Etsy shop and 
thanks to everybody who purchases anything from our Etsy shop because that helps support the show as well. Our shop name is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you'll see our stuff come up because it's our shop. All right, that's it for this episode of Strange Familiars. We'll be back soon with more. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word, and you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com. Oh uh-huh.